Hey, everybody, we have an awesome interview. This is an awesome interview. Just wrapped up the interview. It's an awesome interview. David Greenberg is going to tell us all about public relations, spin, image management. Oh, you know, you know, it's a good one. You know, it's a good interview when we get to like my my wheelhouse. But, you know, you know, when, when the phrase is uh, a predetermined date, get people into a booth to press your button more than your opponent. Uh, that's in my wheelhouse. We're talking about how candidates have to frame their arguments and uh, uh, the, the the fallacy that the candidate that you agree with is telling the most truth. No, 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 no. No matter what truth they believe in, no matter how they are going to better the world in your eyes, they still have to frame their message so it gets across to the most amount of people. We get into the nitty gritty. We get into the historical. We get into all of it. But first... I have to let you know that this show, like all the politics shows, are brought to you by the folks who make us whole. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go. Uh, We are at uh, uh, just a, a great place. In fact, we are about to hit our highest patron levels ever. I think we need like eight or nine more, and we will crest over the highest number of patrons ever. Now's the time to do it. Head on over there, takepoliticsseriously.com. If you're at the $3 level, you get a bonus podcast on Monday, a bonus podcast on Friday, little minisodes, so you always have the hot takes from the day's news. All right, let's go ahead and get to David Greenberg. Politics, 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 politics. My guest today is David Greenberg. He is the professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. He's also the author of Republic of Spin and Inside History of the American Presidency. We're going to get into all about image management, PR, and all that goes along with the presidential campaign. Uh, uh, David, thank you uh, for coming on the show. Sure, my pleasure to be on. All right, so let, let, let's get the general lay of the land here. Uh, uh, how important is public relations in a presidential campaign? Which I know for people listening to this show probably sounds like a a, a, a silly question, but I, I do just want to get a general uh, sense of it from you. Sure. Well, you know, the term public relations comes from the early 20th century, but the idea you know, goes all the way back to ancient Greece and the arts of rhetoric. You know, rhetoric or public relations or spin has always been inseparable from politics. You know, politics involves putting your best slant or spin on the information, on your argument, on your candidate or yourself, uh, if you're the rhetorician, you know, so... It's it's built into what politics is, so it shouldn't surprise or shock or disappoint us that politics is about managing your message and managing your image. So, you know, something that I get a lot of flack for because I, I try to talk about uh, campaigns and politicians in a, a, a very uh, uh, 
mechanical way uh, and, and mm-hmm. you know removing the idea of like whether or not you are totally in agreement or totally in disagreement with the positions that these people take we all need to understand that the goal of the game is to get as many people into the voting booth to hit your button and along with that comes in messaging and making sure that you're talking about the right things to the right people at the right times uh from from your perspective do you get uh, uh, do you think that there's a disconnect between voters who want to very much believe that everything that comes out of somebody's mouth or is specifically in terms of political figures, uh, that that is like the honest truth and, and, and the ones that are the best are the ones that speak the most from the heart? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, again, you know, I mean, I'm not a classicist, but I sure. can go back to the Greeks. Yeah. Um, so Plato the great philosopher believed that all rhetoric was bad because the purpose of rhetoric was not to get to truth. That was philosophy. Rhetoric was like a debased version of philosophy. It was like cosmetics is to medicine. It's about the appearance. And so he thought a rhetorician, whether you're arguing for something that happens to be true or happens to be false, is kind of equally you know, a, a disreputable figure. Aristotle, his student, has the opposite argument. Aristotle says, well, of course, you know, rhetoric can be used. It's a tool of leadership like anything else and can be used for good or for ill. And I think in America today, (laughs) we sort of fancy ourselves Platonists. We like to kind of pound our fists and deplore the spin doctors and all the image making. But deep down, we're actually... Aristotelians. We may even be unwittingly so. And we sort of know this because if it's our guy who is spinning and spinning well, if you're a Democrat and you like Obama and you really get thrilled with his speeches, you don't even see that as spin. You just see that as good communication, as effective uh, political speech making or image making. Um, but I think, you know, we, we all know at some level that what we really are getting angry about is not that people use these techniques, it's when the other guy uses it, the other side uses it, and is effective with it. So if we think Trump is effective with his, you know, lying and his, uh, you know, fake news and so on, (laughs) that's what gets us mad. It's it's, It's that we disagree with the outcomes, not that we disagree with the techniques. Yeah, I mean, because it's not like Donald Trump was the first politician to hate the media, right? Like he didn't he didn't invent the concept of being frustrated with reporters or saying that what they're reporting is incorrect. Uh, right, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right. Before we get into some more modern uh, uh, examples, I am fascinated with the modernization of politics, and and specifically through the the 50s 60s and 70s how it's kind of evolved to the point that it is right now when Mm -hmm. did politicians and presidential politicians begin to understand that uh, hiring on people to help them with these elements of their campaign was crucial or has that always been there it just wasn't celebrated no it really um is kind of a 20th century development i mean look if you look at the politicians always had aides and consultants of some sort, but they tended to be, you know, what was called like in the Andrew Jackson years, the kitchen cabinet. Other politicians or bosses or sort of political operatives who 
you know, who, who knew where the voters were and where the party machines were. In the 20th century, you start getting these experts in communication, people who traffic in words and images and symbols. They sometimes come out of journalism. Soon they're coming out of advertising and PR. So Theodore Roosevelt, who is the one I really start my book with, is the first one who's hiring basically public relations men. They're not yet called that, but you know, public information officers for this project in the government or that project. In the 20s, you start to get official speech writers. Uh, and, you know, slowly through the earliest, early 20th century, more and more of these professional types uh, are brought on both to the process of governing and also to the process of campaigning. All right. So so let's let let's let's hone in on what they are doing. You bring on people that are here specifically for political messaging. The way that I've always thought of it and and tell me if I'm, I'm barking up the wrong tree here is obviously it is to accentuate your positives, hide your weaknesses and in a political context that is speaking to your 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 audience that if you are a Christian conservative candidate then you want to make sure that Number one, nothing you do would detract from that, and everything you do at least doesn't hurt those uh, positions. How would you describe the, the just the basic idea of a political operative in, in modern times? Well, I think that's right. I think there have been different approaches. Um, you know, one of the uh, common themes that you see throughout um, the literature, you know, going back throughout the century, whether it's advertising people, whether it's political consultants, whether it's propagandists, you know, even <laughs> someone like Goebbels, they all argue that the best way to have your message resonate is to tap into something that's true, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's actually there. That doesn't mean there isn't exaggeration, that there isn't uh, deception or you know papering over certain aspects. But if you don't have a message that fundamentally resonates, that people you know find to be uh, you know reflected in the person they're looking at and listening to, then it's going to come off as as phony, and the message isn't going to take. You know, I think there's a popular misconception that people are just completely credulous and will believe anything. And while, you know, I think it was Barnum who said, you know, no <laughs> one uh, went broke underestimating uh, the American public. Yeah. Um, it's also the case that people are discerning. I mean, when you and I and your listeners hear different politicians some of them we're inclined to trust more than others. And why is that? Maybe it's because of a predisposition to their politics, their viewpoint. Maybe it's because we know their track record. You know, maybe it's because of certain aspects of their personality and, and, and affect that, that strike us as more trustworthy. Um, so the key really is how do you put across a message that not only says what you want it to say, but that will resonate with your audience, with your voters. Um, and I would also say sort of in terms of politics, there have sort of been two approaches. For most of the post-World War II era, we saw a rise in the number of independents and an increase in what political scientists call ticket splitting, somebody who might vote for a Republican president, Democratic governor, or something yeah. like that. As a result, 
for most of the second half of the 20th century, politicians, especially running for president, tried to go for the middle. You would sort of run to the left or the right, you know, to get your base in the primary. Once you had the nomination, you ran to the middle. Starting with uh, George Bush in 2000 and sort of continuing with uh, Obama uh, and also, I guess, Trump, that strategy wasn't always followed. There, there was sort of a new idea, which was through micro-targeting, which is yeah. kind of a new thing. You could, you could really drum up greater turnout among your base. So capturing the middle was less important than increasing turnout on the base. And I think Hillary Clinton sort of thought, oh, that's the new way. That's the new way to win. And probably would have been better in 2016 if she had accepted that she had the base in hand and made more efforts to get the middle in retrospect. And I think we're still, you know, we, we now have a political situation where it's not clear which of those strategies is necessarily better. It sort of depends on the candidate and depends on the race. So if you were to go back and and point at either a campaign or a president and say that's that's an example you have to pay attention to in terms of public relations and and, and spin and everything that goes into it. Who would you point at? Uh, well, you know, I think most of our, our successful uh, presidential campaigns, um, you know, have something to offer, something to learn from. Um, you know, I what I see the probably the two most successful campaigns of the last forty years, I'd say, mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan in nineteen eighty mm-hmm. and Bill Clinton Bill Clinton in nineteen ninety two, because both of them had not just slogans and policies, but they had sort of a theory of the case. They had an analysis of what was wrong with America and how that translated into a particular foreign policy prescription and particular domestic policy prescriptions. For, for Reagan, it was about, you know, big government had become too oppressive and had, was getting in the way of the economy, and it was about American weakness abroad. For Bill Clinton, you know, he was the first president really to identify globalization and the changing nature of the economy and, you know, the idea that we had to move to a sort of more nimble uh, economy and uh, preserve, you know, running against Reaganism, but also not going back to 60s liberalism. Uh, and so their ideas kind of flowed from an analysis. I think the weaker candidacies, the weaker campaigns may have a good bundle of policy prescriptions, but they don't really have a diagnosis of where the country was, is, and needs to go. Yeah. So th- there seems to be even amongst kind of the, the, the professional analysts of politics uh, that, you know, the, the Donald Trump campaign is either this weird stealth brilliance or just a, 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 a ramshackle family circus path that eventually ended up in the White House. Uh, where, where, where do you come down on that? I think it's in some ways a little of both. I wouldn't say brilliant, but I think Trump did have an analysis. It's an analysis I don't share, but it's one that I think has elements of truth and that resonates with a lot of Americans. And the analysis is, and it's 
comparable to what you hear from Bernie Sanders and others on the left, that both parties' elites uh, kind of sold out the American people and prospered while, you know, the average American was uh, sinking or foundering. Um, and, you know, I don't think Trump had any po- political genius, but I think he <laughs> found this message. And then I think he has good, fairly good political intuition or instincts, and, and he followed those effectively. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's, there's any, um, you know, method in his madness. I don't think there's any genius behind it. I think he sort of has good instincts. He knows that what he's doing keeps him popular with about 40% of Americans. And as in 2016, he will probably have underwater popularity uh, ratings on election day, but can win anyway if the opponent is also unpopular or if the Democrats are unpopular. And so, you know, he's not, he's not trying to be someone who's beloved by all. He's trying to be someone who will have a fiercely loyal base and then capture just enough of the middle to win. You know, you, you mentioned something earlier about the whole idea of, of, of finding something that's true. And I, I do think that that does play into something that Donald Trump really uh, uh, used to his tremendous advantage. Number one, uh, I think he understood media probably better than any candidate you know, leading up to, I mean, maybe like Reagan or something, but to, to understand that media right now, very fractured, very scared, uh, advertising's falling off a cliff. So a big story that can fall in their lap as easily as possible will be gobbled up and spread around even faster than it would otherwise. And then also Mm -hmm. to the, find the thing that's true, almost to his detriment sometimes. And even now it's whatever's bubbling up on the right. And and it could be Colin Kaepernick, it could be the border, it could be whatever, but he will hoover it up and repeat it and and boom, now all of a sudden something that was a little bit of an online brush fire turns into a national discussion. Right. And we can see this also just in the way that so many um, you know, respectable or or formerly respectable, <laughs> you know, online magazines, publications chase after these like tiny local stories because they have some element of race or gender, identity, politics, political correctness that they know just get people worked up. And this probably isn't the stuff that should be, according to kind of historical norms, the stuff of presidential politics, but it does it does get people agitated and energized on one side or the other, and you see this reflected on Twitter or wherever. Um, and yeah, Trump has an ability to sort of jump on those issues, um, even if you know people aren't responding to what he's doing on you know trade or foreign policy or what have you. You know, you mentioned Twitter, so so I do want your opinion on this because there seems to be this large crisis of uh, reality where uh, some candidates and some uh, demographics that are obviously very popular on Twitter, uh, spend a lot of time on Twitter, believe that Twitter or social media on on some level are an, if imperfect, accurate reflection of humanity. And that's something that we need to pay attention to while other folks, specifically candidates that speak to demographics that aren't really online all that much, uh, or at least online in the same kind of drip feed way that uh, a, a lot of folks who are on Twitter are, 
say like, no, it's a very, very, very specific subsection of the American voting public. And so to a certain extent, we're paying way too much attention to it than we could otherwise. Uh, how important do you think social media is as a barometer for the nation? Right. I think that's a good way of putting it. You want to distinguish. It is, I think, very important as a tool of communication, but not very good as a barometer of public opinion. Um, Nate Cohn, you know, the New York Times data guy, mm -hmm. did a, a front page story a couple months back, a big analysis of what I think he called Democratic Twitter, looking just at the <laughs> Democratic side of the aisle yeah. and seeing just how wildly unrepresentative sort of left wing, left liberal opinion on Twitter was compared to, you know, a fairly large public opinion sampling of Democratic or left leaning voters overall. And, you know, Twitter is much whiter, it's much further left, it's much younger, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which it really deviates from the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, let alone the independents who Democrats also need to win if they're going to win um, in 2020. So I think in that sense, Twitter really is not an accurate read. And I think not only the public, but a lot of newspaper reporters, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of people at the New York Times who don't <laughs> read their colleague Nate Cohn or who forget his lessons. There's just this temptation to chase after that stuff because the people I know who are the most addicted to Twitter are all reporters. Yes. So I'm oh, I'm it. so glad you said that because that's the one thing I know for sure. I don't know if the uh, that, that a representative majority of America is on Twitter, but I sure know that 99% of the media is. <laughs> like that is right, the one exactly. that is the one thing that you know for sure is if something trends on Twitter, boy howdy are people going to write about it. Right. And this is actually one thing. I don't know whether Trump you know, knew this from any analysis or just because he was on Twitter, he knew he would get a rise out of stuff from reporters when he tweeted. Um, but I think this is one reason people blame CNN and the kind of unfiltered platform that Trump would get on CNN and the other cable channels. You know, he decides to hold an all night uh, press conference yeah. when he wins a primary and they just cover it whole but also Twitter. I mean, I think both played a role in the inordinate amount of attention that he got during the Republican primaries. The other thing I would say about Twitter is people tend to forget this, but Barack Obama had a Twitter feed for eight years. Yep. You know, no one remembers a thing he wrote because he saw it and his communications office saw it as basically an extension of the press release. Yes. And the kinds of things that were tweeted out were just kind of these anodyne, uh, ordinary, you know, uh, standard issue White House communications office statements. What Trump does is, is he, Twitter is it, it rewards certain qualities. It's impulsive. Yeah, it's emotional and angry and it's brief. And in all three respects, that plays perfectly to Trump's natural style. So it was sort of like the man and the medium found each other much the way they did with Roosevelt and radio or Kennedy and television. Uh, a candidate came along who knew how to 
use this well or who just intuited. We had television before with Eisenhower, and we had radio before with Calvin Coolidge and Hoover, but we associate with Roosevelt because he mastered it. We yeah. associate TV with Kennedy because he mastered it, and Trump's the one who had this intuitive feel for how Twitter could be effective. I, I also think part of the other thing, and actually uh, uh, I would uh, probably say with Kennedy too, those were two candidates who under, who who saw the press as worth engaging in in a very aggressive way comparatively to their opponents and uh, you know for for you know Trump on 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 one hand he very much yeah look CNN gave him all this coverage and he certainly got plenty of coverage for everything that he did on on Twitter but it's also combined or you know that that's in a uh, relief to Everybody he ran with on the Republican side for the primary that I think was largely press averse because Republican candidates don't usually get good press. Uh, so they pick and choose their spots with their outlets. And Hillary Clinton, who kind of famously loathed the press and would only do things if it was very, very heavily managed. And I think that's that's one of those paradigm shifts that I, I don't know if we're ever going to go back to a point where the more aggressive person isn't going to be more rewarded for it. I think that generally tends to be true. Look, there are times when presidents have had a very uh, unfriendly, rigid, regimented approach to the press and still succeeded. George Bush yeah. in his first term, you know, not, not so much the second term, was less successful. But I think for a candidate, you really have to be open to the press. I mean, you know, Obama sort of got wrapped by the press um, in his presidency for, you know, not allowing their photographers in and only releasing White House photos and, you know, doing making his golf excursions off the record and all kinds of things. But there can be no doubt that he got a huge boost in 08 from yeah. the media coverage, which was just, you know, completely and sometimes, you know, overtly and admittedly fawning. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I think bodes well, bodes rather ill, sorry, for Joe Biden, even though, you know, he still seems to be hanging on to first place, is <laughs> he's not doing as much press as he ought to be. The New York Times, you know, interviewed 18 or 20 candidates on a whole set of questions that they asked him. Biden didn't participate. You know, you can't do that. You got to you got to go out there and uh, be a part of the mix that in a campaign. Uh, that's really important. I'm glad you mentioned Biden, because now we can swing toward the more uh, 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 recent developments with the Democratic debates last week in Miami. Obviously, the big moment uh, was between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We're seeing some of the poll data over the last few days roll out that does seem that this had an effect on the race itself. At least one CNN poll has Biden down quite a bit, Harris up quite a bit. When you were watching that, what what was your reaction as it was happening? Yeah, well, I think almost anybody watching could tell this was a big moment, that there had been already a couple uh, lighter jabs at Biden, and he didn't seem you know, quite as nimble as he maybe has been in the past at dealing with those, but you know, he, he brushed them off okay. But when Harris came out of the combination of her effectiveness and her prosecutorial style, 
her invocation of personal experience and her voice cracking, and the fact that this was about race, which is kind of such a fraught issue uh, today and, and always has been really yeah. in American politics, really created a huge trap for Biden. I think he could have included much of the substance of what he said and handled it better. But when she said that was hurtful and, and really showed herself to be uh, vulnerable, and his first response was not one of compassion. You know, I think I, to me it was obvious that he screwed up. There, there could have been a way a Bill Clinton or someone could have led with empathy and sort of put himself on Harris's side and sort of harness the sympathy that, you know, the crowd had for her yeah. and then say, but, you know, and then pivoted and said, but, you know, I don't think anybody in this room thinks that busting was a successful experiment. You know, you, you could have, he could have won the policy argument, but people weren't interested in the policy argument at that point. And then when he bungled uh, the first part, he ended up bungling the policy argument as well. Well, I mean, he's decided to start arguing about the yes or no vote on busing, which is like crazy to me. Like you, you have a 40 year record on civil rights. Like, how do you not a how the how the hell are you not prepared for Kamala Harris to come at you with that? You should have known leading into it that there was going to be some challenge. She was probably the most likely person to do it. Uh, uh, right. And then and then there's no that it's like, no, 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 I would really like to get into an argument. I'd like to buy into your premise on whether or not I support busing now uh, a decision that I made when Bewitched was in its first season. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, he basically and this is, you know, to go back to spin. I mean, look, I'm not a practitioner and I often say. You know, Michael Lewis tells people he writes about finance, but don't ask him for, you know, <laughs> stock tips. Advice. Yeah. And so I'm not really giving advice on yeah. spin, but one of the things that they always say is if you can control the framing, you know, you're you're likely to win the argument. And and Biden let Harris control the framing of that exchange. And so he was sort of on the back foot the whole time. Yeah, that was it was it was amazing to me. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that he got touched earlier because that was the I, I you, you knew he was in trouble when he when he was taking crap from Eric Swalwell, because Eric Swalwell right, right. should not. From, and when he just said, I'm going to hang on to that torch, you know, I thought that moment, he's another great moment from the history of spin. He could have just repeated, he wouldn't even have to improve upon, just repeated Ronald Reagan's line when he was asked about his age uh, in the debate with Walter Mondale in 1984 and said, I'm not going to use my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. And he brought down the House and no one ever mentioned the age issue for the rest of the 84 campaign. I think Biden could have done something similar, even used that very line and, you know, probably gotten a reprieve on the old man stuff. Yeah. But uh, he didn't do that either. It just just blows my I mean, like from where he was polling leading into that debate, America decided they want Joe Biden. They don't want Eric Swalwell. <laughs> so you can right. just kind of cruise by as long as you make mention that, hey, look, this is the plan I'm going in for. The, the American people are in for it. They know who I am. I'm a known quantity. Buzz off, right. kiddo. I can't even hear you from that far left on the stage. Uh, now, uh, uh, all right. Uh, so, so uh, Kamala Harris does uh, uh, explode from here. Is this something uh, historically when a candidate has a moment that you want to seize on and and make that kind of the DNA for the campaign going forward, or uh, uh, do you want to pivot and and now that you have the spotlight, start talking about something else so you own the next thing too? 
Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think this campaign uh, is sui generis. You know, it, it's hard to look back to uh, past campaigns for a pattern yeah. that applies here because of the number of candidates, uh, how early we have debates. And you know, the idea that you're having debates the <laughs> summer before is only the last handful of election cycles like in the 70s and 80s they weren't starting debates this early i'm pretty sure so uh yeah i think harris has to show that she's got more in her quiver that she's got more ideas more arguments um you know i think biden's still in it elizabeth warren is clearly still in it so i think right now it's looking like a three-person race although you know there's a few other people who you know aren't going to be counted out just yet. And, you know, we have to remember in 2016, in the fall, Trump had already started plowing over everybody. But Ben Carson had this weird surge where he overtook Trump briefly. You know, we had the time before that in 12, Rick Santorum, of all people, like came yeah. out of nowhere in Iowa. But yeah, it's so always it's always Iowa though. We just know that in I, Iowa, Iowa falls in love with with odd with odd candidates and either they make something of it or they don't. More right. More 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 statistically they right? don't. You know, Jimmy Carter did. So yeah. I think, you know, it's it's there was a period sort of during my young adulthood where the primary races got pretty predictable. You yeah. know, it was like a gore, 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 whatever. The, 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 yeah, there might be a little bit of competition. But I think, I think this year just seems unusually fluid. And I don't think anybody is going to be able to rest easy, you know, till Super Tuesday at, at the earliest. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, uh, it, it's starting so early that I, I can't help but wonder. You know, we, we had news today that John Hickenlooper's staff has, like, pretty much abandoned him in mass. Uh, and that was the dude who was well, on the stage. The race. All, all of his supporters are going to flock to someone else. Yeah. So it's like, I, 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 I mean, it's, yeah. You know, I think we'll see, we'll see some of the Hickenlooper level candidates um, bowing out in the coming weeks and months. And, you know, maybe even you'll see a bigger name person like a Gillibrand have to close up shop. Um, but I think it's still going to be pretty crowded by the time we get to Iowa. Yeah, you know, th- that was my initial thought. And then, you know, I was reading a, a couple things about how uh, to make these debate floors that some of the candidates are like paying 35 or $40 per donor uh, to get to the donor levels uh, by micro-targeting on Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, and it's like, man, you want to know what? It, it, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like this where the candidates have to play de facto national by way of... Facebook and stuff like that uh, so early in the game. Maybe it does exhaust uh, uh, the, the coffers a little faster than they would otherwise. But who knows? Because normally a candidate like Hickenlooper would just go to Iowa and just live in Des Moines for a year and, and drive around and meet everybody's, you know, baby and dog. Oh, well. Right. And it's interesting because Harris has not spent a lot of time in Iowa. And yet the strong debate performance catapults her even i think there was an iowa poll out today that has her in uh, i believe second place there uh all of a sudden yeah. so it it's it's true that the local helps but it's also true that you're standing in iowa or new hampshire can rise or fall with your national profile so there's sort of two different ways to do it absolutely all right well look uh uh 
you are awesome, and we have to have you back on uh, 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 very soon as this campaign uh, continues to roll on. My guest has been David Greenberg, a professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. He is the author. Go get his book, Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. And you can also catch his regular history columns in Politico magazine. David, thank you. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>